Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. All right. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to another episode of JS Party. This is episode number 29 in our weekly celebration of everything JavaScript. I'm K-Ball. I'm your host for this episode, and I'm joined by two of our awesome JS Party panelists. First off, we have Nick Nisi. How's it going, Nick? Hey, I'm doing good. Sweet. And Jared Santo. What's up, Jared? Not too much, K-Ball. I'll tell you what, you're doing such a great job bringing the, the joy, bringing the MC skills that I might have to rename myself J-Ball just to steal J-ball. some of your cool. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right. So next time I actually try to write a JS Party rap, I'll, I'll call you J-Ball and we'll see what we can do. Please do. It rhymes with more stuff than Jared, I think. Like I think K-Ball. It, it rhymes with K-Ball quite nicely. Yes. <laughs> Fancy that. All right. So today we are talking about this big fancy smancy survey report, user survey report that Node, the Node.js Foundation shipped last week. Now they published this foundation, they talked to several thousand or something like 1,800 folks who are using Node, gathered a whole bunch of data, sliced it, diced it, got it analyzed by a third party, put together an interactive version of it. Uh, And there's just lots of stuff there about what's going on in the JavaScript community. So uh, let's first kind of start off by talking a little bit about uh, why, why do we think this is important? You know, y'all were pretty excited about doing this episode. So Jared, maybe tell us what what got you excited about this report? Why is it important? I'm a data nerd, I guess. I like I like tracking progress of things and seeing where our community and different, you know, subsections of our community have been and what they're doing now and where they're going. And so anytime somebody puts together reports like these, I just like to dive into them. And I don't usually have too much output coming out of that. I would love to do more things with the data, um, but I at least like to read it and think about it. And I think also the the Stack Overflow survey is another one that we we focus on. And I think GitHub even was doing some GitHub user surveys, which we had a show uh, on that back in the day on requests for commits. So I just like 
the data side. I don't know. How about you guys? Yeah, I, I really like using it as an indicator to see where where things are and how <laughs> ahead or behind my skill set is compared relative to <laughs> to other uh, developers who took this survey. Uh, right. But it was also interesting to compare it to uh, the previous year. So I looked at 2016 through 2018 and uh, just interesting to see how things have changed. Okay, well, you did a whole write-up on this on InfoQ, right? So you obviously think this is pretty important as well. Are you coming from a similar angle as we are, as why we care? Yeah, I mean, I, I proudly rock my new Relic Data Nerd shirt from 2009, uh, and you know, we'll dive into anything. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about this is they not only sort of show the high level and let you slice it, dice it interactively, but for the true geeks among us, they give us the data so we can actually go and, and analyze it. Mm. Uh, but I, I kind of was looking at this from a couple of perspectives. One that, uh, you know, has been bouncing around my head for a while. There was a blog post a couple weeks ago by Anil Dash that was titled, what if JavaScript wins? And it was sort of playing with this idea of JavaScript as a, the e JavaScript ecosystem as a network that might be getting escape velocity and sort of dominating all other, uh, languages. And so this coming out right after it made me think, well, can we find any evidence pro or against? Like, is this actually happening? In some ways, I mean, there's definitely strong evidence that, that JavaScript as a ecosystem is growing extremely rapidly. Um, but I actually, I found this, um, this report kind of counteracted that sense as well, because it seemed to, to show continued focus in the web dev space and you know, if you look back a couple of years, it doesn't seem like JavaScript is growing in all domains. It seems like it's still pretty focused on web developers. So what did Anil say would happen if, if JavaScript wins? I, I personally, I don't, I don't really want to see a, a winner declared. I don't, I don't think there will be. I'm, one of the reasons I'm excited about WASM is, you know, bringing more people to the table. I like the, I'm a polyglot, so I like having lots of different facets, lots of different languages. I don't really want a, a winner. I don't want a homogenous you know, JavaScript blob that powers the entire world. What about you guys? The post, I think, was kind of playing with this idea of where do developers and companies choose to invest first? And, you know, he highlighted that, you know, there's always going to be room in development for niche solutions and things that are uh, targeting particular use cases. Um, but that, you know, when your people are building developer tools or they're building uh, libraries and frameworks or, or building uh, interfaces to libraries and frameworks, they have to make prioritization decisions. Which languages are they going to target or support first? And right. kind of where he was saying is, it is possible that we'll end up in a situation where JavaScript has such incredible mindshare and so many people doing it that it becomes the first choice for all of those. And many of those products will go on and support other languages, but some won't. And so it would kind of create this this kind of entangling network where the default choice, if you didn't have a strong reason to do otherwise, would be JavaScript. Which we're definitely, I mean, I, I know why he wrote that post. We're definitely seeing the tide, you know, shifting and or rising or whatever it's doing in that direction. And it's interesting, especially when you, we get to the section on learning Node.js and you know, how people go about learning. It's interesting to see uh, for specifically Apple with, the, with open sourcing Swift and trying to get that in such a learning aspect of the world like education and with people who are coming into programming that that be their first language because what we're seeing is javascript is a lot of people's first language now and um, you can tell how important that is for continued use 
by how much Apple is throwing into trying to get Swift to be that first language. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, resources and learning is is a big one, and that was actually one place where you know it was, it was once again looking at this year over year data. Some things didn't change at all, like that. You know, looking for this idea that JavaScript is taking over the world, I didn't see any evidence for that. The percentage of people doing web dev versus IoT versus whatever had stayed pretty similar. But what did change was you know, year over year was satisfaction with the learning resources and and also what percentage of people responding were new to programming. Uh, so I mm. think JavaScript has made, and particularly Node has made some uh, big strides in improving the the learning resources out there. Well, let's come back to learning. Let's start with uh, the rapid growth that you've documented. I think this was one of the, the things that you highlighted in your InfoQ article. And this quote of 10 million Node.js users um, according to the survey, as compared to over 7 million Node.js instances in 2017. So there we have a, a large rise, right? Yeah. Well, how many developers do we think there are out there? And that's, I've seen a, a number of different numbers thrown out, but I think the, the higher end was something like 20 to 30 million developers. Does that mesh with what you guys have heard? I'm frantically trying to grab a, a recent number. I don't think I've heard recently. That number, so I'll have to go on yours. I'm looking at a Red Monk article about how many developers are there in the world. Um, GitHub said this is back in 2017 21 million developers working on 59 million projects. That was from that's a slide I'm seeing off of a kind of a GitHub State of the Union, which I think was worldwide, not GitHub wide, but that jives a little bit with what you just said. So, if we, I mean, even if we take the very high end and say there's 30 million developers out there, that means one in three are using Node. That's crazy. That's incredibly high. Now, what does using mean? So a lot of this stuff is up to interpretation, both on our side, like how we interpret the results, but then also on the individual survey takers side. And I'm sure they're given more context than we are. But when you say node user, do we know exactly what that means? Like, Great question. No idea. No idea. Okay. <laughs> it's subjective. If you think you're a node user, you are one. Something like that, maybe. Yeah, I wonder if they... And if you think you are, you're probably taking this survey. Yeah, that's another good question, and you know, all these surveys have their biases built in, reminding me of our conversation about machine learning and the, the biases built in there. But this is surveys of like node users. Mm -hmm. um, according to the overview, it was fielded in English and Chinese from October 27th to January 2018, yielding uh, over 1,600 respondents. They don't really go into the details of, of how they went about acquiring, you know, how they conducted the survey maybe that's in the downloaded pdf that i didn't look at i'm just looking at the interactive overview yeah i didn't see that either and i, I noticed something that was odd which was how underrepresented china was in the data they had uh one percent of respondents were in china and huh. you know if you i did a little bit of looking around you know there was a study by a node source uh, a year or so ago that indicated that china was the at least the largest in the developing world in terms of downloads of Node per month or downloads of Node overall. Also looking at, you know, other JavaScript communities that I'm a part of, you know, and pretty active or getting more and more active in the Vue community. There's tons of Chinese representation there. There's a ton of mm -hmm. stuff going on. It, it makes me think that uh, their survey is, is probably not, you know, that representative of the actual distribution of Node users at least when it comes to China. These things are hard, and they're very hard to do well. And so um, 
as with many of these surveys. Like Nick said, this is people who are, I mean, it's going to be node heavy because their point is to profile Node.js users. And so that's kind of a self-profiling prophecy, if you will. But um, all these numbers, you know, they're, they're great to think about. They're great for uh, discussions like these. And some of them have to be taken with a grain of salt, knowing that, you know, there are flaws in methodology and in sample sizes and all these things. I also found interesting that they, they had separate questions, apparently, between distinguishing between Node versus JavaScript. It kind of cracked me up that 90, only 93% of the people who responded to the survey who said they use Node, you know, it said 100% use Node, only 93% said they're using JavaScript. Do you think that that could be taken as like a, a distinction between front-end and back-end JavaScript? Could be. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe? Maybe, if we're being super generous. Though, I mean, once again, looking at they, a smaller percentage said they were doing front-end development of some sort so uh yeah it, it i mean maybe uh, that maybe it's a distinction maybe folks are using it but they're only doing development in typescript or some sort of compiled to javascript language i find node like difficult to to explain outside of the in crowd because of that reason hmm. like it's a it's a runtime yeah but it's a runtime exactly. you know how yeah i mean is that i mean is that the way you describe to somebody who's maybe either a programmer in a completely different space, or maybe they're just like, what do you do? And then you say, I do Node.js or... Yeah, I mean, I think you could say it's a, it's a runtime. That doesn't mean something, basically say, it, you know, it's a system for running JavaScript in places that aren't a, br- a web browser. That's pretty impressive. Now you're good at this, Kevin. See, I'm... I'm, I'm J-ball. J-ball. All right. What would, what, would Kevin, what would Kevin say? I'm going to get you a shirt uh, that yeah, says that's, J-ball. Yeah, there, there you go. So what do you think specifically? I mean, this is this was put on by a third party. So the the Node.js Foundation hired out you know a third party to conduct the research. Um, why do you think in their very own survey they would distinguish between Node as a quote unquote language versus JavaScript as a language? I know Nick, you just kind of guessed at one reason, but isn't that weird? I think it is, especially since no other language in there. There's no mention of any other. Framework, I guess. I'd, I'd kind of classify Node as a framework, and yeah. you don't really see that anywhere else. But then you have the two distinct distinctions between Node and JavaScript, so it, it is a little weird. I have two hypotheses. Hypothesis number one: If I look at the the PDF, it's branded Node.js, blah blah blah, the Linux Foundation. So that hypothesis is the survey was actually administered by a set of folks who help at the Linux Foundation who are not themselves Node users. Mm. hypothesis number two is they're trying to create brand distinction separate from javascript yeah both are kind of marketing ish i guess reasons but yeah i could see both those being you know partially true or maybe both of them are dead on um Mm -hmm. since it is a third party conducting this deal you know they do their best to completely understand but maybe they don't and then secondly they are i mean node.js is a thing right it's the node.js foundation node.js.org and so, but JavaScript is a bigger thing that encapsulates that thing. And so if you're trying to stand apart in your survey, then you're going to try to distinguish. Yeah. I don't know. It definitely, you know, as someone who uses JavaScript, both in a node setting and a non-node setting, it definitely threw me for a loop. I was like, um, do these guys actually use the thing that they're talking about here? <laughs> that they're asking about. Yeah. yeah what, is, what is going on there? Well, the researchers themselves might not be using node and... And maybe if they're doing, you know, data 
data munging, maybe they're using a Python or an R or something else. But uh, lots of people are, are using Node, and you know the people that they surveyed sure are. Uh, back to the rapid growth discussion, uh, you have 75% of uh, surveyees planning to increase their usage over the next 12 months. So not only people are using it, um, but they must be happy with it because they're also going to you know, use it even more in the next 12 months. I was really kind of surprised at the the numbers uh, for that increase at the expense of other languages like Java and Ruby and PHP. I thought that those were pretty significant decreases. There's Java is, uh, in the next 12 months, a 43% decrease, uh, Ruby 37%, and PHP 51%. Yeah, the one thing I noticed with that, which is, it, you know, hard, hard to say, but what they're measuring is intent, what people say. Uh, yeah. And... I, I dug into that when I was writing that that article about this for InfoQ. Um, if you look at the previous year's survey, there were similar reports around how much they're going to intending to change. Right, Python's going to go way up. PHP, Go, Rust are gonna, you know all these big intents to change. Almost none of those actually translated into changes in this year's survey in percent saying they used it. Mm. The only ones that actually changed well, Python was up slightly, PHP was down slightly. Both Go and and Rust, which reported you know, massive intent to increase, were stable in terms of their percent, no change. Uh, and Scala and Swift, both of which had a net report of increased intent, were down year over year. So that intent to change hmm. uh, that may we it might be better for us to read that as aspirational. You know, yeah. these are the cool hip languages that I really want to be using. <laughs> these are the old dead languages that I want to get away from. Oh shoot! Right. I actually have to keep delivering production code. Well, I'll go with what I know. Yeah, I think that's or similar to like an exit poll. It's like who are you going to vote for, and then who versus who you actually vote for. You know, come polling day, come the actual voting day, uh, we find those quite different. Um, I'm still just flabbergasted because I'm looking at the languages used and it, it just other languages used in addition to Node. The top language, JavaScript. It's like, excuse me, you know. <laughs> Uh, weird, but, uh, not to get over it. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. It's... I think it still does show, um, just overall satisfaction with JavaScript and the node ecosystem as compared to other, um, ecosystems for node developers. Like node developers do seem to enjoy the node ecosystem. JavaScript. Gonna yeah, JavaScript. That's right. And maybe you do see that a little bit with the, the aspirational intent to diversify, but then the, the actual not a diversification. There's a lot of things that play into that. Like you said, Kevin, maybe the, the need to ship production code or just use the tools that you're familiar with. But specifically with the desire to get into Go, get into Rust, these are things that would compete specifically with Node on the back end, right? Back end developers. Um, but the lack of actual movement may indicate that they're either completely satisfied or uh, other reasons that they don't actually go about switching. One thing I found interesting looking at those languages also was the looking at Ruby and Python. And this is going a little bit astray potentially, but you know, kind of in my head, those are in very similar buckets with the exception that Python is also data science. Like I think of Ruby right. and Python as those are the the best kind of general purpose starting web development languages. Uh, you know, largely because Django and Rails have been so successful. Looking at the survey, like Python strictly dominates Ruby. It's used by far more people. It's intended to increase by far more people. 
So I don't know how much of that is specific to folks who are doing Node and what which things they're going to replace. How much of that is my perspective is totally biased from living in a startup ecosystem and uh, you know West Coast to California or California and all of those things or or where that's coming from. Uh, I'm curious what what your your perspectives are on you know Python versus Ruby. Well, I would be surprised, but I've I've seen the data previously, so it doesn't surprise me this time around. Um, I, I think definitely Ruby gets the uh, larger end of the marketing hype, or at least historically has, and now is getting the short end of the stick on the hype. And so you see a lot of people moving away, whereas Python has remained relatively steady. Um, I think a lot of that number does have to do with just the multi-faceted use of Python beyond just the web. And like you said, that it's used in data science. Um, specifically, now it's it's becoming even more to the forefront with you know the, the shift into uh, a lot of deep learning stuff. So that's probably what I would attribute it to. But it has its hooks deep into academia as well. And these are places that are underrepresented um, in kind of the typical developer marketing, hacker news, changelog news world, right? Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer here at Changelog. You know how important it is to stay in the know. And our weekly newsletter helps you and thousands of other developers do exactly that. It's the developer news that matters, nothing more and nothing less. Visit changelog.com and subscribe today. All right. So another interesting spot in the survey was looking at package use. And this is something where, you know, NPM as a registry kind of typically dominates. Uh, you can see these like registry strat stuff where they're adding 500 plus packages a day and, and really going all over. But um, there was some interesting data in there about, you know, using Yarn versus NPM or things like that. I think, Nick, did you add the the notes on this? Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, so I was kind of surprised uh, at how how small of a market share Yarn has compared to how much hype it seems to have, um, with really only being at 13%. Um, that was pretty interesting to me, uh, but it has been increasing over the years. Well, that's the thing is they, they, they noted, if you look at the interactive version of the survey, that that 13% is up uh, year over year. I couldn't find any stats in the 2017 data, and didn't Yarn come out in 2017? I mean, it couldn't have been too much usage. Um, when was Yarn actually released? It couldn't have been uh, too long. I want to say 2016. I found the the release blog post uh, October 11th, 2016. Okay, and I found the 1.0 release was 20 September 2017. So that's when it was 1.0. So yeah, I guess you could have two years of of adoption then. Um, but I just couldn't see what that was. I still think 13% is low. But that being said, it seems like NPM, the client, you know, has really reacted to Yarn in many ways and has, you know, they've been working hard. So it's one of those competition, you know, begets quality. Yeah, I mean, I so, think the, um, the vast, or the, to me at least, the massively largest value prop that Yarn had was the lock file and getting that reasonably right. Uh, because mm. npm shrink wrap was a disaster, and 
NPM kind of took that and now they have the package lock JSON and it works pretty much the same. Um, and that the incremental value of yarn relative to NPM just dropped dramatically and it may still be better, mm. but it's not like 10 X better anymore. It's maybe like 20% better. The Corbin uh, posted in the chat here. He says, this was the news last week. It looks like mixmax.com uh, posted a blog to yarn and back to NPM again. So we've reached that level of the cycle where, you know, first everybody was switching and now certain people, at least this particular blog is, is switching back. And maybe Corbin, if you can tell us the high level summary of why they're switching back, maybe it was what, what we just said here that the, it's perhaps incrementally better, but not 10 X uh, anymore. It might be the case. Uh, my, my particular use is I, I've used them both. Um, NPM seems just fine. We have yarn in change logs, you know, pipeline and stuff, but uh, I just don't see much of a difference as an end user. I, I don't dig into them too deeply. I don't write my own packages and stuff. So to me, it's like six in one hand and half a dozen in the other. Yeah, that's the same with me. I wonder how much of the hype is just Facebook. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this is a conversation that comes up often when you have, you know, huge tech giants in the open source world. Everything they do makes a splash. And everything they everything they release has more weight behind it than, um, you know, the smaller developers' releases. And so, some of that you just see the sheer magnitude of their influence, based on who they are. And so maybe that some of that was with Yarn. Um, there was you know there was a lot of frustration specifically around you know install times and stuff with NPM when Yarn first was announced. And so it was way faster at first. And so that's I mean that was solving a core problem. It is interesting to look at the way big corporations do open source, uh, you know, Facebook seems to primarily focus on supporting their own open source projects. And they've released a ton to the community, which is phenomenal. But if you contrast to, uh, for example, Google or Apple, both of those companies, they do release their own you know, and, and sometimes push their own open source projects, but they also put a ton of time and energy and you know, staffing supporting other ecosystem projects. So some real-time follow-up on that MixMax article on why they switched back to NPM or are switching back. And this is a summary coming in from the chat room. The speed was getting way better in NPM and the lock files, like you mentioned, K-Ball. They didn't like some of the long-standing bugs and breaking bugs in Yarn. And then they said that Yarn has shipped very bad regressions, which made us afraid of upgrading. So that's one company's uh, situation. But I think we're, we're definitely seeing where Yarn has had a huge net impact, like positive influence on the Node and NPM communities. Um, and it's made NPM better, uh, I think, to the point that, you know, pick which one you like more and you're going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah, I've seen that type of phenomenon play out in open source projects a few different times. And it's great when it works, right? Because it's it's great for users to have a one, uh, you know, de facto place to go so they don't have to worry about the decision or figuring things out. But if you only have the one and there's never any challengers, then they don't have any incentive to innovate. And so, you know, we saw it in the Ruby community, you saw it with Merb and Rails, and then they eventually merged with Rails taking on all the best things of Merb. Uh, we saw it with IOJS, uh, you know, back in the earlier days of Node, and that really pushed Node to change and open up their processes and do all sorts of other fun stuff. Uh, Nick highlights uh, Vim and NeoVim in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> which I still haven't gotten myself onto NeoVim yet, even despite our conversation the other week, but I'll get there. Um, and now, yeah, with Yarn and NPM, you know, if, if it turns out 
that you we no longer need yarn because all the benefits it add get added get pulled in by npm great makes me think of adam and vs code oh maybe we should save that for later ah uh, yes talk about competing projects that are now co-owned <laughs> vs adam vs adam well if you could combine combine the sort of speed and crispness of vs code with the programmability of adam the best of both worlds, or you could combine the, the worst of both worlds and end up somewhere completely different, so we'll have to see what happens. Or they might stay separate. Who knows? So another interesting thing with the package managers, you know, just thinking about NPM as the, the quote-unquote source of truth for the package management in the system. Um, one thing that I found interesting was more people are using Google to find packages than previous years. And, and of course, most people are still using npmjs.org like as their first stop search. Um, but 32% are using Google slash other search engine, which is basically just Google, uh, or DuckDuckGo for us hardcores out there. And that's up from, from the previous year. So I'm wondering if, uh, if we can correlate that to anything or if there's some insights about the community that that. How much of that is just Google search is amazing and everyone else who tries to do search usually sucks. I mean, I use, I use Google to find people on Twitter I use Google to find people on LinkedIn. I use Google. I mean, all of these are things where like those products have their own searches. They just suck compared to Google. And I've never actually like my, my workflow has never been go to npmjs.org and search. It's never been that way. It's always been go to Google, search, find it on GitHub, and then click through or find the npm install, you know, whatever the package name is there on GitHub. And then I just never even use npmjs.org in that particular workflow. And I do end up there from time to time, but I've never started there. So it's 38% start their search at npmjs.org and 32% start on Google or some other search engine, uh, which is up from last year. And then it goes down to like 1% for GitHubs and, and Stack Overflows. I'm the exact same way. And I will, I will Google for it. And if uh, the GitHub package isn't, or the GitHub repository isn't obvious in the Google search results, but the npm um, page is. I'll click through to npm just so I can click on the GitHub link in there. I, <laughs> yeah, me too. Actually, I, something about the UI in npm I just don't like it. So I I, I read everything like the readmes and you're everything like, in GitHub. You're actively avoiding it if you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I 100% agree. The npm UI is a pain in the butt, and it doesn't usually. Well, yeah. The nice thing about Google is it'll get you to GitHub, but it'll also often get you to like their documentation page, which if you're trying to decide how to use something or you're looking for a package that you are already using, documentation is probably what you're looking for. Yep. And in the same vein, I'll click through to GitHub. And then if there's a link in the top to a documentation page, then I'll click through that. So I'm just clicking all around. <laughs> you're just clicking like crazy. You're a crazy clicker. Before we leave the package managers section, I also thought that it was cool that they uh, highlighted um, like node package managers like NVM as as places where people install node from and nvm was pretty high up on that list and i was curious uh how you all do that i use nvm brew install node seriously i do both seriously seriously yeah yeah seriously so I, I, <laughs> no i'm just kidding I, no yeah i'm serious i brew install it to have like a, a system node and then i have nvm to have individual nodes that i might use for different projects that i'm working on uh the problem is i don't like I don't like NVM because it is so slow and it slows my, my terminal down so much unless I don't load it every time I open a new terminal, in which case it doesn't really give me much value. So I'm kind of just stuck in this slow world right now. But it's um, 
it's interesting and it, this is also kind of the reason why i don't i don't like globally installed packages it's just because i don't ever really know which version of node i might have mm. uh, at my reach so for the uninitiated what does nvm offer that uh, built in like a homebrew or some other s operating system package manager like dpackage or uh, rpms don't offer uh just comparing it to homebrew it just gives me an easy way to install different versions of node so i i have the latest version from homebrew installed so that's 10 point something uh and then i'm the project that i'm working on right now for my day job is using L the lts version so i can just say nvm use dash dash lts and use that or i can put an nvmrc mm -hmm. in that project and it'll just automatically switch my uh, terminal over to that version when i cd into that directory that makes sense. So I think what we're seeing is a distinction between a casual node user like myself and like a daily driver or a power user like yourself. Um, anybody who's going to be like actively day-to-day -day developing a specific app or a set of apps inside of the node environment, uh, version management and switching easily is definitely a, a nice to have or maybe a must-have. Yeah, if you've got uh, projects of different ages, like one of the the beauties and the pain points of the node ecosystem is how fast it changes. And you know, having the ability to stay on the version of Node that you know is working with this project while moving to the latest and greatest and the hot new thing with your new project is, I, I couldn't trade it for the world. Anytime you have long-lived projects, you need some sort of version manager. What about this point about the um, availability of multiple registries? And maybe I'm going down a, a rat hole here, so this is back to the survey here on package managers. And they asked about the importance of multiple registries. And it was very unimportant. So like the average is like one in three people think that having multiple registries uh, would be important. Strangely, it was way less in uh, the EMEA, which I can't remember what that stands for. That's Europe. Uh, what's the M? Help me out, guys. Blanking. Oh, uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So I knew what it generally meant, but I couldn't remember what the stinking M stood for. Uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and then it's like super high in Latin America, 55%, like almost an outlier, perhaps, of people who think that uh, having multiple registries is important. And when I started to think about this, I thought it in terms of like, is this meaning we shouldn't all rely solely on NPM as a registry now, not as a client? But then the example in there says uh, React versus React Native or CLI. So maybe I was, I'm just asking for some help interpreting this and wondering if you guys understood it better than I did. I'm really not sure. I mean, is this, is this multiple public registries? Because, I mean, one direction to go down is do you need private registries, right? Do you need the ability to set up you know, internal registries for your company's packages right. or things like that? Which then that would make some more sense that it would be so different based on where you are in the world. Like maybe Latin America needs to have even localized registries, either private or even just geographically, like maybe they just don't have the connection to NPM's uh, points of presence to get the packages they need, or maybe they have social or legal policy in those countries that require private. But that's why I got thrown by such a loop when it says React versus React Native or CLI, kind of in parentheses, as kind of giving context. That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, that was one of Ryan Dahl's regrets uh, to foreshadow a little bit, potentially. What was that? Centralized and privately controlled repositories. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a single point of failure, right? Yep. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's private, private, a privately owned single point of failure. Thinking about the way that other registries are run. So the one that I'm somewhat familiar with is the, the Ruby Gems registry, and that is kind of supported via donation in a lot of ways. There's a organization and a, both uh, Ruby together, and then I think Ruby Gems may have its own organization, but it's essentially su- supported by people donating to this thing. And that has resulted in very slow rates of change and politics over how is that money being used and yada, 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 yada. Uh, whereas in this case, we're, we're actually seeing pretty rapid rates of change in the registry. Like the stuff they're doing with security is really interesting. And they're doing you know, all these mm-hmm. extensive things at the registry level. Uh, but there's, you know, a, a company owns it, right? I mean, right. Yeah, it's like uh, it's kind of like it goes back kind of to a BDFL idea, right? Like, and 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 really the the desire to decentralize is in the case that the BDFL loses its B, right? Like the benevolence goes away, right? And in the case of NPM, like they've been doing, from my perspective, and just echoing what you said there, K Ball, they've been doing a very good job, and they are innovating, and they are. Um, continuing to work on the product and we've seen what some competition could do with yarn and, and the npm client for instance but it's always like in the back of your mind like what if what if microsoft buys npm haha <laughs> you know like what if something changes dramatically what if it wasn't microsoft what if it was oracle Ooh. you know or some company that <laughs> that hasn't been such a good steward of open source and now like why then we all ask ourselves why did we put all of our eggs in that one private company's basket you know because the benevolence is gone Yes. Oh, Oracle. So that's a that. good way to kill anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I killed the conversation. No. Uh, worth pointing out that there's different regi- there's different package managers that are managing these things differently and they have their own troubles, you know, with federation, that's hard. You know, with donation models, that's hard. Um, this is not an easy thing to solve. And maybe like in Go's situation, they're like, we just don't have one. So... Uh, you know, figure it out amongst yourselves, or mostly they're using you know GitHub URLs, which also becomes a, a single point of failure. In fact, interestingly, there's been debate now uh, inside of the Go community how to handle that, and they're starting to introduce this idea of vanity imports, just like a vanity domain that you would use to redirect. Huh. And so instead of having like the full GitHub URL in your import statement, you have like you know Jared's GoPackage.com or whatever it is. And inside there, you point that to, to the source URL. And then I guess the go get command can go ahead and parse that out and follow the redirect. And so in the case that you want to move without having everybody, you know, go change their hard-coded import in their code, you just change the redirect on a domain that you own away from, you know, host A to host B, and you're golden. So they're starting to think about those kind of things, you know, because of recent events. Is there anyone, any community or system that has done this sort of really effectively uh i'm thinking about well you look at linux there it's actually lots of different companies run their own registries right you have um you're going to put your sources you're going to point at canonical servers if you're on ubuntu but you might also point at you know a couple extra things and pull stuff down you know that's a model for for multiple registries in some ways some private controlled some public glad that's not my job (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was gonna say there's yeah. a if if you're into those kind of this kind of conversation specifically with people who are like uh knee deep in it, 
Uh, I'll give a quick shout out to our friends at the Manifest, manifest.fm, which is hosted by, it's a podcast hosted by Andrew Nesbitt and Alex Pounds. It's all about package management, and they talk to people who are in this space, you know, trying to figure these things out, people from these different ecosystems, and learn the ins and the outs. And Andrew is a uh, creator of Libraries IO, which is all about packages as well. So I know that show's a little bit on hiatus. Um, they've had a hard time scheduling it, but there's a bunch of good episodes in the back catalog. So go give that a listen if this is something that interests you and uh, our particular knowledge here, the three of us is, you know, not doing you justice. You want to hear some people who have answers to these questions. We're good at asking questions around here. We don't always have the answers. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Smith, senior producer at Changelog. We're so excited to have added the React podcast to our stellar lineup of shows. Every week, Michael Jackson has conversations with developers doing great things in the world of React. You'll hear from people like Andrew Clark, a developer on the React Core team at Facebook. I'm here on the podcast to talk about uh, the thing that I spend most of my time thinking and dreaming and fantasizing and worrying about, which is React, um, <laughs> because that is what I do all day, every day. Um, even when I don't want to. James Long, who was frustrated with budgeting apps, so he decided to build his own called Actual with React and Electron. The UI design is just super overcomplicated in so many of the apps out there. Um, I mean, you look at some of the screenshots of these apps and there's like 50 numbers on the screen. The simplest question that you want to answer is, is what I just said, right? What is my finances right now? Should I buy this thing that's $200? Like, can I buy this PS4? Like, how much is that going to hurt me? Or Henry Zhu. Henry quit his job and is working on open source full time. I think uh, overall, I, I feel pretty good about it for sure. Um, yeah, there's definitely lots of unknowns and things I have to work out, whether it's just like personally or logistically, all that stuff. But I'm definitely excited for what's in store. Go to changelog.com slash react podcast or wherever you listen to our shows. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Y'all have been talking a lot about this Dino talk and I didn't, I haven't seen it. So I'm, I'm just going to sort of let you do the talking um, and then prod you based on your notes that you gave me. But you're talking about change. There's this uh, project that's just started that uh, by one of the founders of Node, Ryan, uh, what's his last name? Ryan Dahl. Ryan Dahl. Ryan Dahl um, called Dino and... I, th I guess supposed to replace node or to go alongside i don't know you guys talk about it you've seen the talk what what is this thing dino yes so um it's not like a drop-in replacement for node by any means he doesn't have any desire for like backwards compatibility with node because then he said he would have to just build in all of the regrets so kind of the context for this is ryan Dahl gave a 30-minute uh, talk at jsconf or is it was it jsconf eu it was just recently yeah uh, called his 10 regrets with node or something like something along those lines. Can't remember the exact title. I thought it was his top 10 things he regrets about node, but then I only could count like seven or eight of them. And so maybe he just misnamed it, but, um, that's, regardless, that's funny. I actually did separately counted out all of the, the regrets and I only got to seven as well, but with five okay. sub points for, for one of them. Oh yeah. He went deep on a few of them. It's a great talk. It's about 30 minutes. It was incredibly candid and truthful 
And most of these things are the things that he regrets having designed, and they're very technical, and they're specific aspects of Node, the technology. Um, and it was interesting, Michael Rogers, of course, one of our panelists, made the point on Twitter that um, Node blew up so fast, and adoption was so fast, that a lot of these things Ryan could have fixed uh, had it not gotten adopted so quickly. He could have fixed them either before 1.0 or in a time, you know, in a timed fashion, but he just wasn't able to. And so that's, uh, that was kind of the context of that talk. And that's when he re revealed that he's been working on this new project. It's written in Go, although he may rewrite it in Rust, called Dino or Deno. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it is a V8 runtime for TypeScript, which of course makes it also one for JavaScript. And it's built to be uh, secure and nice and modern and all these other things. And really what it is, I think, is his a little bit of a retry, a fresh start based on things that he learned, you know, building Node the first time and the regrets that he has trying to not have those regrets this time around. So that's the project. It's, it's garnered uh, much interest. Yeah, I saw it blew up on Hacker News and everybody flooded it with comments and issues and he had to shut it down and be like, hey guys, like this is this is early. Yeah, exactly. He said too much noise and he like closed it down or something. Because it's only he's only been working on it for a month and he he calls it alpha software. In fact, he did say he might rewrite the entire thing in Rust or something like that. Um, and so it's very much not ready for production use, but um, it gets people excited. And that's kind of... The situation. Do we want to do a quick rundown of some of his regrets or? Um, yeah, let's do it. All right. So the first one is that he didn't embrace promises early on. In fact, yeah. it was more like he yeah. removed yeah. promises. Like he started with promises. Or he didn't start with promises, but they were introduced early. And Nick, I feel like you have more history than I do. So feel free to hop in or fix or whatever. Um, but he introduced promises and then he took them out. Does that sound right, Nick? Yeah. So they were in. Uh, for a bit, and and then they were out in favor of the the callback syntax for like the the um, built-in libraries in Node. So right. um, that kind of that default provide a callback, and the first argument to it will be an error, and if that's null, then there was no error, and then you can continue on from there. Uh, I wonder if that would have been uh, an issue if JavaScript hadn't advanced so much in later, mm -hmm. like more recently, like if async await had not been a thing that came to the language, would he have a regret about promises? Yeah. Is something I was wondering. Hmm. I mean, even even just shifting before I haven't done too much with async await yet, but even just shifting from callbacks to promises in my own code, it makes it so much easier to think about asynchronicity and particularly about uh sort of composing asynchronicity across different modules and functions. Like one of the cool things about Node is how free-flowing and composable it is with all these modules if it were completely promise-based right. like that would have been amazing yeah, yeah definitely and his supposition i believe was if promise had stayed in promises had stayed in then we would have gotten to the async await future much faster than we have and specifically like in the standard library and in the the core um and so he regrets having done that the next one is package.json and of course, we're missing a lot of the context. So if this is interesting, you definitely go watch it because he'll explain himself much better than, than I will. Um, but the gist there is that it's too noisy. There's a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. Um, it makes the uh, system interpret like a series of files where you don't really care about that. 
and uh, he regrets package.json pretty much wholesale. Yeah, there was there was really a lot around this. This is the one that I had uh, counted a lot of sub bullet points uh, in there, but it like just the whole bit of complexity that it adds to the Node ecosystem, especially as we're trying to uh, push forward with with a built in like module system. For example, there's a lot of baggage that Node brings uh, to this, and a lot of complexity with like the algorithms for figuring out what code um, to actually like import. Um, and, and just the, the overall complexity of having to, to have this, this, um, registry, the, this JSON file describe your project. The next one was the build system. Like, like I said, it does get very internal and very technical. And so he says the entire build system's a mess. It's because they use this, uh, project called JIP, which was used, I believe by, was it Chromium? or some larger project that he respected at the time, and then they switched away to a newer thing called GIN, I think, G-N. This is a higher than my pay grade right here. But the node got stuck with JIP, and apparently JIP is bad, or the build system is a, a Rube Goldberg machine type of a thing, according to, oh, it's to Ryan. It's a Google project, it looks like, originally. Yeah, and there I think Node is the only surviving user of like large user of this particular project and it's hard it's like very very hard to change if not impossible to change at this point there's that one one more user facing one it's the security and of course this is the 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 stuff he's really trying to fix with this uh, new project as uh the new project requires like explicit and specific um passing of data between v8 and the runtime um, whereas with Node, especially with like binding to system calls and stuff, it's just like anything goes. Node modules, that, uh, and you have anything to add on security, Nick? Uh, no, I was just going to say that that's, um, yeah, like he really called out, like there's no need for something like ESLint to, to need to have the ability to write to your file system unless it's doing like a fix. But um, it, it'd be way more trusting if modules, if you knew that modules couldn't actually affect your computer in any way but right now they can so that's mm -hmm. that's really interesting actually so would you would you have to explicitly enable modules to do writing if they were going to or how would that yeah so yes. he actually answers this in uh, with deno and so deno uh, is locked down and sandboxed by default and if you want to uh, allow the code to be able to write to the file system or to make network requests you have to pass flags to it when you run it so you would say like deno dash dash net to give it network access and dash dash write to give it write access. But could you do that on a module by module basis? That's a good question. Right, because like I may know that I want to access the net and I may know that I want to write files, but I might wa only want to do that through a couple different modules that I trust. Good question. These are these are probably concerns he's still hashing out uh, with Deno specifically. So he thinks node modules was a big mistake. Um, specifically all of the relative installing into your local folders. Uh, he think it should work more like browser. Speaking of Go, he, he referenced Go as a, as a good example, uh, the way that they're doing it, where it's more webby. Um, you just give it a URL or a relative path that's like directly, like if you're linking in your own specific modules. And that's the way that I think Deno is going to work, where it's either an absolute path to a URL somewhere or a relative path that's specifically like inside your local directory. And those are the only two options. And that, that's uh, something that would also 
be heavily cached too. So it relies heavily on, on Semver to ensure that you're only ever getting the one version. And if you need to change that, you either change the number or you have to pass a flag to tell it to re-download the cached file. Mm. Ah, the end of half a gig directories every time I install a new <laughs> node project. Uh, next up, require module, the like the specific syntax where you can leave off the extension. Like it doesn't have to be require underscore dot js. You just say require underscore. And um, you know, he has a it, some of this. You'd have to go watch the talk. Some of it is kind of like him sharing his a little bit of wisdom at an older age. <laughs> it's kind of like when I was younger, I thought that this was a good idea because it was you know you don't need the extension, but he's like just write the extension in there. It's just a .js, or then you can even say .ts. Like apparently, the require system has you know all sorts of logic traversing the file system, looking at file names, blah blah blah, trying to basically infer what you mean when you don't explicitly state the extension. And so, like all that code could disappear if we all just typed .js at the end of those requires. When he would, when he would do that. He would do that differently. That's such a like if you look at the the course of developers learning there's this whole thing of like you start off and you're doing everything explicitly because you don't know how to do anything else. And then you're like, Oh, meta programming and inferring things. This stuff is magic. I'm going to do everything meta. And then you get to a point where you're like, yeah, you know, explicit is good. I like explicit. Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm at a point where I want just enough magic and just enough is completely defined by me and changes on a day to day basis. <laughs> That's uh, just enough. But not too much. So yeah, I guess leaving the JS for, JS off for him was just a little bit too much magic. And then the other thing, which uh, seems minor but required a complicated implementation, was uh, running the index.js pattern, uh, which he calls too cute. And he thought he was just being cute because you have index.html, and so if you have index.js, we could just pick that up and execute it automatically. And apparently, that also requires a whole bunch of heavy lifting uh, underneath the hood that could just be uh, completely removed if you were just explicit about, you know, which which file you want to execute. That pattern was probably one of the longest things, or the, the like, it seems so simple, but it took me a really long time to pick up on that when I started doing Node, because it, it's nonsensical. <laughs> there, there's This is kind of adding another layer to it, but uh, I, I chuckle when I see this in the TypeScript, uh, TypeScript documentation, uh, and how they handle module resolution, because on top of the node resolution that they have for finding, you know, an index inside of a directory uh, or inside of node modules or inside of your global node modules or all the way up the chain, um, they also have to look for uh, .ts files, .tsx files, .d.ts files. And so when you import just a a module in TypeScript, there's up to 21 different places that the system has to check for for that module, which is just insane. Wow. And we wonder why booting apps is slow. So there's your high-level list. Uh, definitely worth watching. Definitely worth uh, looking into and, and watching uh, his progress on this new project. Um, I would say do Ryan a favor and, and watch quietly um, as he's getting <laughs> hit up. I mean, I was even just looking at his issues list, and just the other day there was like six new issues that day. And they were all just like comments or questions or just random stuff. And I'm thinking he's like, why did I even announce this thing yet you know wait till you got something <laughs> but you got something a little more mature to, to announce i guess might be what he learned this time around but uh, now it's out there and uh, it's definitely you know it's an interesting it's an interesting occurrence obviously it's not like the kind of thing that uh is going to like 
wholesale replace node uh, in 2018 or even 2019. There's something to be said about learning from the quote unquote sins of the past and uh, using modern tools and techniques to apply similar ideas in a way that um, ultimately may be uh, much more forward looking. So it's interesting to think about since it is going to provide a, a JavaScript runtime, like how how straightforward would it be to port a node application over into that? Uh, but given the way that we do, you know, nested require and all that other stuff might be tricky. I <laughs> <laughs> wonder if you end up with like a, the equivalent of a webpack or some other thing that is the translating, uh, you know, it goes through and parses Ooh. all your JavaScript in node land and then rewrites it and produces it for Dino land. In the little bit of code that he had um, kind of showing an example, he was using Unpackage to have a tiny, tiny bit of compatibility with Node, but uh, you'd run into all the same problems with, like, if that module's using the Node requires, then you probably can't use it. So uh, it'd be interesting, but it's cool to see Unpackage as a potential uh, solution for for that in the future, if something like this takes off. I'm not familiar with Unpackage. Can you Can you tell me about it real quick? Oh, sorry. Uh, Unpackage, I think it's uh, by Michael Jackson, and it's uh, just a, a CDN for node modules. And so it will take the any node module, you can just go to unpackage.com slash, I'm trying to think of one, Axios, and then it will have all of the files in there. So then you can just uh, have a, a URL to the exact .js file that you want to run from within that package and use that. And it's very useful for... Um, using node modules from a CDN and uh, using that as a CDN for node modules. And also uh, my experience with it uh, is with code sandbox. That's where all of the modules that you import from NPM uh, in code sandbox, it's just making calls to unpackage to go get those and then bring those in and run them in its uh, little runtime. Hmm. Quickly, before we wrap up, since we're talking about change, you want to do quick reactions to the, the big news of the week? Yeah, what did Apple release? (laughs) I don't know. Well, we yeah, exactly. We're low on time, but I feel like we've hinted it enough that it would be it would be a travesty if we didn't talk about it a little bit. So, uh, what are your what are your gut reactions to Microsoft acquiring GitHub? I'm excited. I think that it's going to be a good thing. I think that uh, I think that it's uh, going to be something that helps push GitHub forward um, and hopefully doesn't create a schism in the the community uh my first reaction was shock and now the shock has worn off um i I talked about this i think adam and i did about 40 minutes on spotlight so we'll link that in the notes here if you want you know more thoughts but in brief um i'm coming around to the idea and i think everything's gonna be okay how about you how about you k ball um you know i i'm kind of in a wait and see place uh microsoft has been a much better supporter and steward of open source over the last few years than they were previously and they've they've really you know kind of opened up both what they're doing but also their support of community efforts and they have not killed recent acquisitions i mean linkedin seems to be thriving um you know i don't remember what some of their other acquisitions have been but you know they're not they're not a they're not an oracle right they're not gonna (laughs) shut this thing down and just you know try to lock out the technology or use patent ors or anything like that they seem to be acting more and more as a good steward um so i don't see any major reasons for concern because of that uh, 
I do suspect that we'll start to see lots of kind of hints towards, oh, well, you're using GitHub. Well, naturally, you can put any, you know, hook things up from GitHub to every time you push, deploy it in Azure and do other things that kind of nudge you towards their other products. But so long as they maintain open and they keep uh, an open API so that it's not impossible to have the same thing set up so it deploys it over to AWS or to Google Cloud or wherever you might be deploying, then I don't see a huge problem with that. Peter Bright wrote a great piece in Ars Technica the other day. Um, I guess it was maybe Monday or Tuesday of this week. It says, and the headline is, everyone complaining about Microsoft buying GitHub needs to offer a better solution. And his subtitle is, uh, GitHub needed a buyer and there aren't too many options. And um, we'll link that one in the show notes as well if you want to read a little more about that. Because the fact of the matter is, and, and this was a surprise to a certain degree, especially with how much revenue GitHub was doing, like $200 million a year. Sounds pretty good. Uh, keep this boat floating over here. Um, but much smaller boat, I guess. Yeah, I'll take that. But they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they, they needed a buyer. And um, if you go and, you know, he actually runs down the list of potential acquirers or potential solutions for GitHub, including IPO and including get, going and getting more uh, VC. And he makes a pretty compelling case that this is actually the best option um, in a sea of other options. So um, that's that was a good read, and I'll just uh, submit that to everybody. If you're if you're still, I mean, definitely wait and see, right? Definitely remain skeptical or whatever. Wherever you're at, that's fine. But I think that had this not happened, we probably would have ended up with potentially a much worse scenario. Yeah, and I think that you and Adam cover it really well in that uh, Spotlight episode, but Git is very portable, so if something happens in the future, it's pretty darn easy to move somewhere else. Unless you have all these GitHub URLs hard-coded into your code. (laughs) (laughs) And recall, uh, NPM, package.json, there are shortcuts that go to GitHub URLs. Mm. In in Nodeland, there are... I don't know how many people are using that for, they're probably not using it for modules that are being published, but there are plenty of projects that are, you know, end projects not intended to be you know, reused or included that are referencing GitHub URLs. Yeah, it kind of goes back to my overlying sentiment, overlying, overlaying, something I say all the time, which is like the web is like the world, you know, it's, it's property and you don't want to rent, you want to own. So own your own space and then link out from there and own something you control, your own domain, your own Git repos, whatever it happens to be, to the best that you can, own that and link to these other places. Because ultimately, you know, these service providers can and will change. And if you don't own what you're doing, then they own it. And somebody like Oracle can buy it. Uh, so that is it for today's JS party. Uh, thank you for joining us for this deep dive into the Node.js user study, the future of Node, Dino, what have you, and a little bit about this week's big news. Tune in live at Thursday. I'll do noon because y'all actually call it noon. Noon Central, 10 p.m. Pacific time. Join us and we'll see you next time. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor, share this show with a friend, read us an Apple podcast, go into Overcast and favorite it. 
And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Who's actually in Central Time? Let's call it 10 and 1. Um, <laughs> I am. Nick is. I am. I Adam is and Tim is. I don't know who y'all represent. The 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 coasts, <laughs> the tech community lives on the coasts, right? <laughs> no. Um, hey, they call it the Central Time Zone for a reason because we're the center yeah, of everything. Center of everything. All right. We don't coast around here. <laughs>